1: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Robin Dunbar, the influential academic and author, discusses his new book, which explores the psychology of religion. Why do so many of us have the desire to believe? Robin Dunbar is Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at Oxford University. For the past 50 years he's specialised in anthropology and psychology, focusing mostly on primate behaviour and cognitive function in humans to try and learn just why we behave in the ways we do. He's also the person who came up with the Dunbar number, the theory that humans can only really maintain around 150 connections at once. Think about how many people you actively check in with on social media, rather than passively follow. And you can start to see he may have a point. His latest book is How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, which studies the psychology that underpins why faith is such an integral part of human society. Joining Robin in conversation is Stuart Ritchie, psychologist at King's College London and author of Science Fictions. Here's Stuart with more. Welcome,
0: Robin. I very much enjoyed reading your book, Perhaps to start off before the book, though, many people will be familiar with you from uh, Dunbar's number, uh, the number 150, and your studies of social groups. I wonder if you can give us a little bit of background uh, into them, and then we'll kind of see how that builds a foundation for your theory of how religion evolved. Okay, so
3: Dunbar's number is really... I guess the simplest way of thinking about it is that it's the limit on the number of relationships that you can manage at any one time. That's to say friendship and family relationships, broadly. It came off, actually came off the back of a prediction from uh, group size uh, plotted against brain size in, in monkeys and apes, and, and that equation, the regression equation for that, made a prediction of about 150 as being what we'd expect for humans and um, slightly to my astonishment this turned out uh, when i started looking for data on natural human group sizes to be about right and um, over the last 25 years i suppose since i first uh, suggested this crazy idea we've accumulated really quite a lot Uh, of empirical evidence to suggest that this really is true. And what's odd in a way is it turns out to be not only your natural social world, if you like, the number of friends and family that you have. So that's looking at the world bottom up from from your perspective, embedded into a wider community. But it also turns out to be a natural grouping size for human groups or human organizations. So hunter-gatherer, um, social organizations or um, the, the optimal uh, size for military units, for example, or the optimal size for business organizations. There are all sorts of uh, kinds of <clears throat> weird and, and wonderful, in some cases, um, data sets that we've come across or people have sent to me, um, which which point to this number about 150, give or take a bit, um, as being kind of deeply bound into our natural psychology if you like it's there in the brain it's almost as though you have 150 slots in your mind for relationships it's not a memory problem it's managing those relationships that's the key are
0: there individual differences in this number i mean it, it, we hear about the number 150 but uh, is it the case that some people who are more extroverted that they have more of the slots, and some people who are more interested have fewer. Is is that how this works, or or is it really kind of a a, a, a a kind of a ceiling that people hit up against, and it's just a kind of a human universal?
3: It's a it's a kind of general ceiling, but there's a lot of variation around that, and and we know quite a lot about what causes that variation. It is indeed due to personality differences. So extroverts, as you might well imagine, have more people in their uh, circle of friends, in particular friends and family, introverts tend to have fewer. Um, there's an, a, a very strong age effect. So um, uh, it's, it, the size of this this uh, number increases, I suppose, from birth up through childhood and teenage years. reaches a sort of peak somewhere around about 200, 250 in, in the late teens, early 20s. Probably the early 20s actually. And then from about the mid-20s onwards, it stabilized well, it drops and then stabilizes to very consistently about 150. And then I'm afraid once you get beyond my age, um, which is clearly always going to be next year as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> it starts to decline inexorably as, as, as you age. Um, there are gender effects, uh, although probably not so much in the total number. Um, there are gender, quite strong gender effects in the size of the subgroupings that make up the 150, which we might come back to later. But essentially, you know, it's it's a sort of broad picture, certainly from, from an organisational point of view. It's there isn't much freedom of movement because 150 turns out mathematically to be an ideal number for information flow around networks, either side of that, and in quite a narrow band either side of that efficiency falls away very dramatically it turns out. I think we should have a disclaimer at the start which is we're going to talk about uh, why
0: religion evolved, we're going to talk about religion as if we were you know Martian social scientists who who are just uh, observing this human behavior and we're not necessarily making any claims about the truth value of any particular religion. Uh, we're uh, we're, we're uh, you know a, a religious person might tell you that religion evolved Because it's true, right? Maybe it took us a while to get to the one true religion, which happens to be the one that they were uh, brought up up in. But um, uh, in this case, it doesn't matter what your personal views are. So we're we're coming at it as kind of outsider scientists. That's your approach that you're taking, Uh, am I correct? Absolutely. Yes. OK, so um, uh, you start off the book uh, by by mentioning that there are lots of theories of uh, religion from uh, psychological perspectives, from social perspectives, sometimes even from political perspectives. Karl Marx talks about the religion as the opiates of the masses and so on. Um, could you describe some of those previous theories and then uh, and what they lack and what it is that you've added with this new book uh,
3: about the evolution of religion? I think probably actually is, have been two main kind of dimensions that people have explored. One is obviously the kind of beliefs and theology of religion. Um, and the other is the psychology, particularly in the last well, 15, uh, 20 years, maybe what's become known as the cognitive science of religion. Um, I mean, I'm not going to, discuss at all really the beliefs compared although there are some interesting questions to ask about you know when do certain kinds of beliefs appear um in the course of human evolution but um the cognitive science of religion tends to focus on um the pre-set of the human mind for Um, responding to certain kinds of of things. So this is a very mechanistic view of of, um, religiosity, perhaps, is the way to think about it, your tendency to be religious. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, it's all probably uh, um, beaten gravy to the story of religion as much as anything is. Um, The pitch I've taken, though, is to sort of, in a way, to step back to a much earlier anthropological social sciences tradition, the Durkheimian tradition, say actually, well, you know it's not so much uh the issue of the sort of mind's design per se for uh, absorbing and accepting religious ideas but the way in which religion creates this sense of community bonding that's actually important and that's a consequence of the kinds of religion, rituals that religions engage in. And these rituals are kind of universal. You see them in pretty much all religions. Maybe not all of them um, in, in every religion, but certainly as a sort of set of activities. It's, it's that sense of, of ac- ac- religion as an activity um, and the, that the reason that's important then is it creates this sense of belonging and it does it through what I've called the mystical stance, which is this sense of a direct communication between your mind and the divine mind. And you see this over and over again, but it's a, uh, a, 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 a feature of religions that's particularly prominent in, in uh, what we might call more primitive uh um, uh, Animist type religions, so sh- shamanism and things like that. So that you know this sense and, and that sense of awe and and wonder and and excitement that's created by this this apparent ability to engage directly with the mind of God, if you like, um, seems to be very very important. And I think it points to the fact that you don't join a religion. Well, you can grow up in a religion and <laughs> come to believe uh, the particular beliefs, but you don't join a religion because of its beliefs, you join the religion because of the kind of raw feels you have of the experiences that you get during services and, and so on. It's very much your theory that uh, religion is
0: adaptive then and not yep. uh, some kind of uh, either neutral thing that just kind of came along with evolution of the mind or uh, actually a maladaptive kind of bad byproduct. It's actually your view that uh, that these are, uh, uh, that this is a, a, a A social thing, an evolutionarily adaptive thing. So, is it the case then that religious people are better off in terms of their physical or mental health, or that they're more pro-social? Can you summarise some of the
3: evidence on that, which which you do uh, in the in the book? I I think the 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 burden of the evidence really comes down to the fact that there's a fairly consistent tendency for actively religious people, say people who go regularly to services and take part regularly to be happier feel more satisfied with their lives um, to be able to cope with the vicissitudes of life the the traumas that life insists on throwing at you one way or another um, that they also tend to be healthier on the whole uh, perhaps to recover more quickly from diseases or or um uh from things like surgery or something like that and 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 in, in general, to live longer, probably, and and I suppose the bad news is for, for, for non-religious people they actually die more happily. Ah, well, that's, uh,
0: you know, for for me personally, somewhat bad news indeed. But uh, yeah, so uh, although I, I suppose there's a there's a caveat to to some of that, which is that when it comes to the sort of social aspects, my reading of the evidence is that. Uh, religious people are yes they're healthier physically and mentally and uh um I- indeed they are uh, uh fitter in the evolutionary sense because they have higher levels of fertility and and uh, so on but the um the kind of the, the the outward benefits the pro-sociality does apply only to the in-group uh so there's there, yeah. the, there, yeah. there there's um there's, it's a kind of a focused uh thing which I guess fits very well with your with your theory rather than um, uh, just being more pro-social in general
3: and, and creating a kind of a, a, a better world for all humanity. Yeah, Yeah, I suppose I, I was taking the line just then <clears throat> really in terms of the kinds of direct fitness benefits that has prompted in general the cognitive science of religion folk to take the view that there are none um, or there appear to be none and therefore religion is a kind of aberration of mm. um, how the mind is designed for other perfectly good evolutionary reasons. Uh, and I guess I'm just making a pitch to say, well, actually, it's not quite true. It turns out, I mean, when they made those claims, I think there was not a great deal of evidence that effect. But I think we've accumulated uh, enough evidence to see that, that there are direct personal benefits. That said, I don't think those personal benefits are the reasons that evolution has driven uh, uh, religion or religiosity to occur. The reason religiosity and therefore religions have evolved in the course of human evolution uh, relate, I think, much more explicitly to the social functions of community co, essentially community cohesion, of building this sense of belonging of the in-group in group in in the context of m- the many external threats that that all. Uh, primates in general, all born animals, I suppose, have to face um, in, in the world in which they live. Uh, that's to say, predators on the one hand, and, and particularly in species like um, perhaps primates, certainly the great apes, but most particularly humans, raiders from from the next door valley, you know, and, and raiders are really just predators of another kind to one and purposes. Either way, uh, mammals' general response to these kind of um, external threats is is to clump together in groups, and and the issue is how do you create these bonded groups that will stick together through thick and thin, and not sort of wander off because they've noticed uh, you know a particularly green patch across the other side of the river and abandon your friends, abandon you, you know, for cavalier reasons like that.
0: No, uh, uh, at this point, perhaps I should uh, bring up an issue which you you talk about in, very early in the book, and it comes up again, comes up again. Uh, towards the end um about a her- a scientific heresy uh which is um uh, 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 uh the idea of group selection now it sounds oh, yes. sometimes when you talk about groups and benefits to the group and, and, and so on that you might be talking about this idea of group selection which for anyone who uh, isn't familiar is a kind of a, a a highly controversial and indeed i think uh, uh very very minority theory in the evolutionary biology where uh, uh, groups are uh, the unit of evolution rather than genes. So normally, when we think about evolution, Darwinian evolution, we think about uh, uh, kin selection. So you're you're uh, 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 you're you're trying to benefit the genes that you're carrying, and that means that you benefit people who also carry your genes, and you can be altruistic to them. Um, but not necessarily that it happens uh, to groups. And when you when we talk about groups, I think it is t- it's very easy to slip into a group selection sort of mentality. And I wonder if we can maybe just kind of uh, uh um anticipate uh and, and and debunk that idea before we get into talking about uh
3: the benefits of groups yes so so group selection is indeed the great her- heresy in, in in evolutionary biology for which you know one normally gets flagellated uh for even mentioning it um uh and the reason the the problem with it is not so much if you like the concept in the sense that famously there must be circumstance the circumstances under which it could occur will occur somewhere in the universe but it is it is going to be extremely rare it requires very very specific circ- circumstances to occur. as in this context what we're referring to is evolution for the good of the species or evolution for the good of the group the particular group you happen to be in and kind of cultural evolution has been seen as as a possible version of that. But the problem is all the evidence where people have tried to test for these group selection effects gives negative results. It doesn't seem uh, really to work sufficiently often to be your first port of call. However, what people have kind of begun to realize in maybe the last 20 years only is that with these very social animals, and particularly the social mammals like primates, Forming a coherent, cohesive, bonded social group becomes part and parcel of their individual strategies for survival and successful reproduction. So the group itself uh, provides benefits, but but it's not the level at which evolution's occurring. Those benefits feed back down to the individuals, and I suppose the obvious example of this really is cooperative hunting by you know sort of big predators like hyenas or, or lions, where by ganging together they can bring down a much, much bigger animal so that uh, than they could uh, if they hunted on their own. So there, there is a benefit by cooperating to produce um, uh, a bigger return that, that everybody benefits from. Now This has come to be known as group augmentation selection or group level selection, um, <clears throat> in the sense that there are benefits to be gained by cooperating with other individuals in, in social groups. But still, the evolutionary cost, ben- uh, costing, cost accounting is being done at the level of the genes. Mm-hmm. Here, there's uh, in the. I mean, the problem with cooperation is that you know it involves the the infamous pr- problem that if you hang back, um, you know somebody else pays the cost for you and you double benefit. Um, but in this context of of just grouping together for production, that doesn't arise. You either join the group or you don't. There's no cost to be paid in terms of, uh, or additional cost to be paid um, uh, that you can forego. So it it, it obviates that whole problem that um, has right. bedeviled the evolution right. of cooperation. Great. So let's talk about the, the mystical stance.
0: So it's part of your theory that modern religions, doctrinal religions, you, you, you call them, have a kind of vestige... Uh, uh of the more ancient types of religion w- still within them, and that involves the the sort of the ritual, the dancing, the singing, the fasting, uh, and, and so on. Um, and you talk quite a bit in in that section uh, about uh, endorphins. So I wonder yes. if you could uh, uh, tell us uh, um your how endorphins relate to the the vestigial ritual elements of religion.
3: Okay, so uh, the, the endorphins play a very seminal role um, in social bonding in primates as a whole. It's the main mechanism involved in social bonding. Um, endorphins are chemicals in the brain that are part of the brain's pain management system. They're opiates, hence the name. The endorphins is a contraction of endogenous morphine, um, meaning the body's own or brain's own morphine. Um, because chemically endorphins are very similar to morphine, but the difference is it's just sufficient that we don't get addicted to them in the same way that we do to more conventional opiates that that play such havoc in in our lives. But they act in the same sort of way. They give you this, when they're triggered, they give you this sense of relaxation and calmness and warmth and everything's well with the world and and trust uh, in the individuals you're with, and they create this sense of bondedness. Uh, with those individuals now, primates trigger this system through uh, social grooming, uh, cleaning the fur and the hand movements uh, uh, as they part the fur and so on. Uh, uh, trigger the endorphin system through a very specialised neural system. The problem with that is it's intimacy means that it's a one-on-one activity, and that set in, in turn sets a limit on the size of group you can bond, and that limit seems to be at about fifty individuals. Which is the, so the typical biggest size that species of primates have. Now, when humans tr- or our ancestors uh, tried to evolve bigger groups leading up to our 150 in modern humans, um, they, ran up against, they would have run up against this, this limitation. And, and the only way they could break through that glass ceiling was to find other ways of triggering the endorphin system. And it turns out lots of things do it. Um, and they seem to have discovered a whole series of them, which actually now form our basic social toolkit. These are things like laughter, singing, dancing, uh, telling emotional sub-stories, um, uh, eating and, uh, and drinking together socially, um, round the table, as it were. Um, and in addition to that, it turns out that the rituals of religion also work in this same sort of way. They, all of these trigger the endorphin system. All of them we've shown enhance the sense of bonding. So we've actually gone into uh, church services and, and evaluated the change in people's endorphins output from from before the service to after, and the change in their sense of bonding and shown that, um, you know, during the course of um, uh, uh, services, there's endorphin activation and this creates this sense of belonging to the community. It depends on the level of activity. We, we did it on some sort of uh, Afro-Caribbean-Brazilian uh, uh, um, religions in, in Brazil, which are obviously full of um, uh, singing and dancing and, and enormous fun and um a good bit of mysticism with with trance uh uh you know the sort of priests at the front sort of falling into trance all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and that that really does the job superbly <laughs> but even the sort of conventional uh modestly state services of um conventional uh christian religions uh have the same effect so so it, it's it seems seems to have been a, good mechanism that was hit on for creating this sense of belonging for larger than normal sized groups and it seems to work extremely well on the mega scale
0: and when the groups get even larger than that uh when uh, you, you talk about the kind of the the whole history of, uh, of 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 religion and how it goes through all these stages and as societies become uh agricultural they they take over larger larger amounts of land they become larger they become city states they become countries and so on Um, And and your idea is then that they move from this kind of smaller group bonding to having to have some other control mechanism. And that control mechanism is the, um, uh, the, the phrase you use, is the moralizing high God. Can you tell us a bit about the moralizing high
3: God? Well, the yeah, I mean, the, the big issue is that uh, the, the transition created by the Neolithic, when people started living in villages. So, you know, what you find in hunter gatherers universally, even today, is these kind of shamanic trance based religions, often involving dance and, and singing. Um, <clears throat> once and and you know, hunter gatherers live in very small groups, which allows them to kind of disperse the stresses of group living. Once you get into the Neolithic and people start living in villages, then the stresses of living in large groups, uh, even of sort of one to 200 people, be- become uh, very considerable. And that's when you see the, see the first evidence for what we generally call doctrinal relations in the sense they have some kind of theology uh, and some kind of formal um, priesthood, rituals, uh, uh, temples, these kind of things that, that's visible in the archaeological record. There is a second phase that kicks in um, around about two to three thousand years ago, in what's known as the Axial Age, when you have what what are broadly referred to as the revealed religions, which are the big modern world religions as we have them, um, appear very rapidly all around the same time, essentially you know over a period of a thousand years, and um, and, and in the same part of the world as well, in, in some narrow latitudinal band, which is even more surprising. I think. Um, And that seems to be associated with very large communities that have to be bonded, something in excess of a million people. So, you know, sort of small uh, ancient um, empires, if you like, uh, in a context where there was major social and political upheaval. So there seem to have been a response to that. And then uh, the, the, the...
0: This, this actually now intersects with another interest of mine which is the uh, which is psychology uh, and and uh, the the uh, improvement of psychological research we've getting, we're getting're somewhat better at doing psychological research than we were a few decades ago we've had the replication crisis and so on and when I read moralizing high gods in, in your book it, it it triggered a memory of all these religious priming studies and then I was very happy to find that a few pages later you say, well, actually, a lot of these studies haven't turned out very well. They've they failed to replicate. They've uh, they've not done so well. And th- these are studies where, um, you get people, uh, to be you they read about a, a a god. Your god is watching you. They read a passage from the Bible or something, or they read something, and it primes. The idea is that it primes in their mind that there might be a god up there that's watching their behavior, and that they better control things. Uh, they better control themselves, and then when they go off to uh, uh, do a, a, a game with someone, they're, it turns out they're more fair or they're less likely to steal a cookie from the cookie jar or whatever it is. Um, and um, so, so uh, uh, given that those studies haven't panned out, do you think the idea of, you know, God is watching you and you need to control your behavior is is weaker? Or do you think it's just that those studies just were were not adequate to really test the the, the, the theory
3: that you have here? I think they're just looking in the wrong place. I mean, they, you know, they, they're they assuming that this is an all-encompassing effect. Um, so if you take a random set of people and stick them in the lab and tell mm-hmm. them God's watching them, they'll all respond to that. Well, of course, if half of them are atheists, <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, it, I think it probably is, w- is the case, although I'm not sure that anybody has actually uh, really tested this anywhere. Uh, if you had some deeply religious people, then it would work. But it does, in and in this sense, I think it it seems to form part of a, a suite of um, theological structures, you might call them, which which give form and and uh, function uh, to a particular set of beliefs, a particular religion that make them work. And and you know the whole purpose of it is to is to try and. Uh, sort of make people better behaved in the context of the people, the rest of the community they live with, so that it doesn't break the community up, which is otherwise what will happen if, they, if everybody goes around stealing the cookies from the cookie jar. Um, you know, eventually people are just going to stop living together, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. live in their own caves, and that you lose the benefit of being in a community. So what you want is mechanisms to make people kind of just behave better. Well, I think, you know, the real burden to that one uh is, is these emotional commitments that come out of the rituals and the performance as it were of religion um not the kind of yeah. theological uh, i suppose you might say cognitive aspects of psychology per se although clearly they will add gloss and 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 polish to the effect in other words you know if you if you do a a very careful experiment you'll surely pick up some extra benefit being being accrued by the fact that if people really believe that god is there and can see everything they do even when nobody else can then um uh it you know it it is beneficial and every little every little bit helps as the advertisement says Would you like
2: to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side.
0: Now, um, time is ticking on, so uh, we better move on to the second part of the book's title, which is why religion endures. Now, we haven't had the uh, results of the census yet. We filled in the census relatively recently, within the last year, and we haven't had the results yet. But the prediction, uh, I, I think, I and mean, we can we can uh, discuss this, is that you know, in the UK, uh, religion will have declined. Uh, We'll have fewer people who are religious now. And that's generally been the case. You know, if you look broadly in kind of Western countries, there are some exceptions, but generally, um, if religion is this uh, such an important aspect of society and such an important uh, uh, way to bond people together and so on, why is it that we're becoming less religious? Uh, I I guess
3: this probably goes back as much as anything to a long-held perception in the whole history of religion, really, the, the religions are particularly active in contexts where there's a lot of uh, strife and, uh, and unpredictability. So when the environment is very unpredictable or when you're subject to ra- large quantities of raiding by, by um, people from elsewhere or mass- massive climate change triggering major um, movements of people ar- ar- around the globe, which has happened, you know, on many occasions in in the past. Um, then it, it kind of makes the, if you like, the, I suppose, the comforts of religion, and also the bonding component of religion, especially important. So at the one level, it's kind of making you feel better about, you know, the, these awful circumstances which you're having to cope with. Uh, but secondarily, it's also helping to bond the community, to act as a defensive bulwark against these kind of Kind of effects, and I suppose it can cut both ways because you know if 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 the community is bonded together, they can go out and raid other people, and uh, help themselves to their food um, uh, preferentially to being raided by their next door neighbours. But you know, I I I don't see any reason just to um, uh, view that as uh, uh, unlikely. Although, uh, and there is, I think there is some uh, evidence. To suggest that that some psychological evidence suggests that people do become more religious in those sort of contexts although these are you know kind of small scale experiments mostly
0: so that would that would uh, i suppose cover the tendency of you know if you look at the list of uh, countries where there was a, a kind of global survey and people were asked how important is religion uh, and uh, in your life and the countries where religion is most important are probably I would argue, argue, and you can again disagree, for only places that we would rather not uh, live. Somalia, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, are at the bottom, all the bottom of the list. And the countries where religion is less important are places like uh, Japan, I think, is the very top of the list, uh, Estonia, Sweden. Um, and also some, there are also some kind of interactions with, you know, their communist countries. I think Vietnam is up very high there because, of course, religion was, uh, 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 you know, uh, stamped out as part of a communist uh, communist system. So, um, but it does, uh, uh, I, I wonder if this is maybe just asking the same question again, but think about Japan where there aren't any moralizing high gods there. Uh, they have either uh, Shintoism or Buddhism, or I think the, the majority of people have no religion at all. Um, there are some rituals as part of those uh, religions. Uh, you can watch them if you go to a shrine, you can watch the the, the, the clapping ritual and the throwing a coin in and, and, and so on. Um, uh, but they certainly don't have a moralising high god, and uh, Japan is, of course, famously, notwithstanding the absolutely terrifying and tragic assassination of their XPM the other, the other day, um, famously incredibly safe, low crime, uh, yeah. high trust, uh, and, and so on. So does that act as a kind of exception to your to your
3: overall theory? Uh, not really, I think, in the sense that at least is at least this is what I was told when I was in Japan, is that everybody is both Shinto and Buddhist. Yeah. Um, the two mix together seamlessly in an amazing sort of way. Although clearly there are Shinto temples with Shinto priests and Buddhist temples with Buddhist priests, but everybody gets married by Shinto. Uh, rituals. Everybody gets buried by um, Buddhist uh, uh, rituals. And when I asked why this was so, they said, well, it's kind of obvious because Shinto do much more exciting re- marriage rituals, but their burial rituals are you know, sin and grim. Right. <laughs> and the Buddhists really do a good job on on funerals, but their weddings are pretty, pretty uninspiring. Um, but I think that's a sort of accident of, of history in a way, and I think it's probably helped. I don't know what the history of these two beliefs are going back through the centuries as it were, whether they were much more in competition with each other at some point. But I think probably a lot of the sense of um, uh, modern Japan probably comes out of the fact that, that you know, certainly after the, the the end of the Second World War, but you know. That was a bit of a blip, if you like, because they they'd been doing pretty well right the way through the through the 20th century, from you, um, you know sort of uh, in terms of shipbuilding and and uh, you know sort of whiskey production, which was got in there very early on by some guys from Peterhead who had uh, taken out there to start it. Um, uh, um, that you know they. They've been in a very kind of good place uh, economically and therefore socially uh, right the way through. And I suspect that, you know, it's like a lot of these things that we still have here. We go through the motions in the, in the houses of parliament, you, know, you have prayers said before. Or you know, if, if there's a big national event, you know, like a a wedding, a royal wedding, or coronation, or something, you know, it's it's full of Anglican, uh, uh, full on Anglican service, and that's kind of just regarded as kind of a, a good and and warm making thing to do. It gives one a feeling of, of being part of the community, and I suspect that plays a big role in 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 the way. Japan is. I mean, they still have lots of very weird and wonderful sex kicking around at the bottom, which are, you know, sort of neither Shinto nor nor, uh, Buddhist, uh, particularly, Um, you know, and and very often those appeal to people who are at the bottom of the kind of economic and social scale. Yeah. The last time I did uh, an
0: event for Intelligence Squared, it was about sex differences, uh, uh, specifically sex differences in the brain. But we also talked about uh, psychology um, you note in the book that the uh, most well replicated, uh, most solid finding in psychology of religion is that females are more religious than males. Um, well, I suppose the first question is why, why is that, uh, and how does it relate to your uh, to, to your overall uh, theory? Um, I,
3: I, it certainly seems to be true that women or make up the bulk of. Um, congregations, particularly in fa- sort of fading religions, as it were, um, they just seem to be much more religious than, than, than men are generally. Um, there has been an argument is that's related to the general um, kind of di- cognitive dimension that underpins these aspe- aspects of our social brain that run out into, on the ma- end of the male spectrum, in, into the autistic spectrum and that indeed, autistic individuals, let's say high functioning autistic individuals of normal intelligence, um, really are very, very rarely religious in, a, in any kind of meaningful and active form. And so kind of males are, ordinary adult males, if you like, are, 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 are just a few steps up from that. So they're, they're a bit more religious, but they're still not as religious as we Now, why that should be so is, I think there's no satisfactory explanation for, but I, my inclination is to point to the fact that women are much better um, at social cognitive skills than men are. So things like mentalizing or theory of mind, this ability to understand another individual's mind. Um, to understand their intentions and why 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 they're doing something, to ask you know, well, why are they doing this? You know, these women are just much better at doing that, and as a result of that, they they tend to have much bigger uh, circles of friendship than, than men do. Um, the interesting question, you know, that's kind of an explanation for the fact, and the question is, why should that be? And that I think is completely open uh, mm. to to argument. Still, I mean, one argument that could be deployed is as a speculation, is that there's a tendency for women to move on marriage in most, uh, agricult- certainly agricultural societies, small-scale societies, and in, in some hunter-gatherer societies, it's a bit more variable there, but certainly in agricultural ones, it's it's uh, the women tend to move and live with them, and they, they arrive in a context where Everybody is on the husband's side. They have no relatives in the community, and they just better be better getting on with or mm. managing the social complexities of, of the, the social environment they're in, and therefore they need better, better skills. And that may pre- just predispose them, as a byproduct, conceivably, um, uh, to be more religious. But um, it's, it's hard to see any kind of obvious uh, reason. Really, and it's certainly yeah. a difficult one to test. And that actually
0: nicely brings us full circle, because another part of the "why religion evolved" theory that you have is is this idea of understanding other people's minds, and the idea that uh, as we evolved, we uh, evolved the ability. As our brains became bigger and more complex, we evolved the ability to hold in our mind more. Uh, uh, levels of intentionality, as you call it. So I think that he thinks that God thinks that we should do this. Uh, I, I just I, um, uh, we we should really move on to the questions, but I just wanted to put that in there that that's another aspect that we didn't we didn't talk about. There's lots of interesting uh, uh, discussion of that idea in the book. So. Let's move to questions now. Um, uh, we have quite a few already, so uh, hopefully we'll get through uh, as many as we can. But uh, feel free if you have more questions to put them in to put them in the box. Actually, I'm going to go to uh, a question here. Uh, they didn't put their uh, name uh, the person that asked it, but this is something that was on my list uh, uh, to ask if we had time anyway. Which is, there's this paradox that you bring up at the end of the book, which is you're talking about how uh, uh, this kind of community cohesion idea uh, is, is so important to religion, and yet religion schism all the time. Uh, they uh, throw up new cults and new yeah. uh, uh, sects and so on all the time. And famously, I mean, it seems there's a big resurgence in interest in cults. Every every Netflix documentary at the moment seems to be about uh, some Mormon cult or whatever in, 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 in the US. It's a big big thing at the moment. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, cults and, and how it fits with your theory that religions
3: are so, uh, 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 they have this, this, this schism tendency? Yeah. I think this just goes back to the fact that religions evolved in the context of, by modern human standards, very small communities. They were really designed to create this sense of belonging and bonding in communities of about Dunbar's number. So somewhere between one and two hundred, which is the natural kind of. Uh, living group size for hunter gatherers and small scale societies and villages in fact it was the you know it was still the average size of villages bizarrely in the doomsday book <laughs> just a thousand years ago in mm-hmm. in England and Wales when the normans uh undertook their census. um uh I th- I, and I think because of that uh, it it's uh it had this mystical stance component of this this kind of experiential raw fields component. Uh, plays a very strong role, and, and in, in that context, then charismatic individuals become important. So it's very easy for uh, or big religions to create this sort of bubbling up of, of cults and sects from the bottom. Um, sometimes, you know, with very weird and strange uh, theologies, in which case the, the powers that be at the top uh, don't like them at all. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, they, they take off and they give rise to, you know, brand new major religions, it has been the history of, of what well, really most of the big world religions and mm-hmm. particularly the Abrahamic uh, religions. Um, so it's sort of just part and parcel of, uh, the way religion was designed to handle small scale social worlds and is not terribly well adapted to handling a very large scale. It's surprisingly good at generalizing but it, it it you know at the last hurdle it keeps failing uh, um as you might say and and because you know sort of a new sect pops up somewhere in the in the corner of the the village and and, and just takes off but it's a very interesting phenomenon and it's a, it is so widespread it it is unbelievable but it's almost always associated with ecstatic trance-based experiences so almost all the Mm. suite of Protestant uh, uh, churches as we have them now began life um, as small charismatic sects with ecstatic experiences Much, sometimes much to the dismay of, of their founders even. But, I mean, it's the reason the, the um, uh, Quakers are called the Quakers, you know that is not their proper name. <laughs> the yeah. Society of Friends, but because they it was heavily trance based very very early on and to some extent still is, you know the Quaking bit <laughs> that was the result of trance got them their label as they were, which they now live happily with. But it's mm. it's a a direct parallel here with the way languages form dialects, you know. Languages have this terrible tendency to spawn dialects like absolute crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, here's another anonymous uh, question.
0: Um, and actually, this is uh, uh, something you bring up in the book as well. Do you see ideologies such as socialism and nationalism? Uh, in the book, you mention the Nazi party and its rituals and, and so on, which uh, uh, were very, very, very prominent uh, uh, in its kind of brand. Um Do you see
3: them as as performing the same function as religion? They do, but they don't do it as well. And that's the problem, I think. (laughs) Uh, um, And what's missing here appears to be this transcendental effect of feeling that you're in direct contact with some greater force, uh, spiritual force. And and there's some nice evidence from American 19th century utopian cults, of which a very large number, Uh, some of which are still with us, like the Mormons and and so on. But if you look at their uh, survival times um, uh, during the 19th century, the... Uh, the ones that had a religious basis to them, almost irrespective of what that religious basis was, survived for about 10 times longer than s- mm. purely secular ones. There were a lot of secular ones based on Owenite, Richard Owen's ideas. Richard Owen, you'll remember, founded New Lanark up in um, mm. in Scotland, which I'm sure you know very well, having been Visited there many it. times. <laughs> Visited it in school, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he got fed up with the restrictions being imposed by the, the government in, in Britain. At the time, so he thought he'd do better in America, and wandered off there uh, to set up uh, in a, a, a communes of the similar sort, kind, socialist principles. Unfortunately, none of them lasted more than about ten years. They had a very, very short lifespan. Usually, because uh, I, I, the, either the um, uh, leader the charismatic leader ran off with the, the, the takings of, uh, and, and uh, the money or, 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 or ran off with uh, uh, somebody's wife. So one of the two usually happens. <laughs> and that didn't seem to happen in religiously based ones. And maybe there's a sense there that there's a, the kind of um, uh, moralizing high God watching over people's behavior when nobody else can see them does have some sort of effect.
0: Well, that actually brings us uh, nicely to another anonymous question, which is, it seems that a lot of religions are devised by men in order to suppress women. Discuss. Yeah, I
3: I don't think that's so. Um, I I think that uh, a lot of the religions come out of people's particular experiences and cogitations, as it were, uh, and it gives them ideas. Um, which they didn't try and implement. But I, it, at the end of the day, what then seems to happen is they tend to attract women followers in, in large numbers. Um, and that's the root of the problem. So although it you know it, it didn't originate uh, as, a, as a, a means of uh, oppressing women in, in that sense, and shouldn't do so necessarily, there's no reason to expect it. I'm afraid that's one of the frailties and failings of human nature that it just does. Over and over again. I mean, it's quite bizarre, particularly in the in those cults that we that we mentioned. It tends to be,
0: uh, and you you talk about this in the book, the kind of sexual element uh, with the yeah. many many wives and the really yeah. uh, sort of almost slavery that's happening. Uh, in, yes, yes, in, in yes, yeah. Jarvis asks, uh, did you speak to religious people uh, when you were doing uh, the research for your book? To what extent does your kind of personal
3: uh, interactions with the religious people shape? Your, uh, your 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 theory. I guess it's a combination both of lifetime exposure to different kinds of religion. Because I had the looking back on it, the fortune to grow up in a very multicultural um, environment in Africa, where I was exposed to very large numbers of religions simultaneously. So you got to know around the edges of these different religions, um, uh, you know what what their beliefs were in a, in a way which you. Mm, really probably wouldn't do uh or certainly not at the time um in living in any particularly european country where you'd be exposed to one religion within your communities so that was very formative because it allowed me to sort of uh, notice what was going on um but um in, in the end i suppose we have done projects with uh you know congregations of churches and indeed you know, my collaborators on this last big project we had that, that's fed into the book, um, you know, were were all um, religious people. So, or, or most of them were, in some to some degree. So, you know, we have inside um, uh, views as well as outside views. But uh, the, at the end of the day, you know, a, a lot of it has involved trying to step back uh, and not be drawn too much into, um. um the details of, of particular religions in that sense. But I, I suppose it's true that, that I've always been interested in religions uh, in general. So, you know, I, I was reading about different religions from around the world from early teenage The role of drugs in uh, early and even current religions. So
0: Kate asked a question about that. And you mentioned in the book uh, psilocybin and, and various other uh, aspects. So perhaps uh, could you talk about how... Um, uh, perhaps psychedelic drugs and other drugs have been involved in the, the yeah. evolution of religion. Uh, I, I
3: think that, I mean, they drugs of various kinds have a very, very long history, um, uh, archaeologically speaking, um, going back you know, sort of well into to to the, the middle of the Neolithic, the Holocene. Um, the archaeological record's very good on that, and so they seem to have been widely used. A lot of these drugs. It probably initially, um, so opium, marijuana, um, um, the various mushroomy things, um, henbane, lots of these sort of weird and wonderful well-known drugs probably began with their medicinal properties and attracted attention because of that and were being used um, because they actually did produce, you know, beneficial uh, uh, improvements in health when you were ill. Um, but then they clearly got taken over in, in many cases for use in religious contexts. So it's extremely widespread, particularly in shamanic uh, type in environments, with where services if we give them use that as a generic term uh, based on on trance, uh, falling into trance. Um, but I think the answer probably, or the explanation for this, probably lies in the fact that it actually these, a lot of these things actually trigger the endorphin system. You know, we tend to think of them as mind bending uh, effects and, and yes, they do. And I'm sure that's a very entertaining and exciting uh, thing to experience. But what seems to happen, or there is a suggestion that what's actually happening here is that a lot of them are triggering the endorphin system. It's, it's an over um, uh, activity of the endorphin system that's triggering trance. So basically what this comes down to, is there are two ways of getting into trance. One is the very disciplined, uh, calm, measured way of doing it. So you think of, of Buddhist and yogic uh, um, uh, meditation practices, um, which are very hard to learn, but produce the effects very nicely and are very beneficial. And you know, on the other hand, there's the kind of um, heavy-handed uh, um, sledgehammer way, <laughs> which is very quick uh but has (laughs) invariably has kind of gives you a bad head afterwards Mm, basically mm. i suppose you might say um but they do you know i mean there's the very famous experiment um in in uh the u.s the the um uh, Boston experiment where, where they gave people um, uh, one of these 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 drugs during an Easter service. It's volunteers, I hasten to add, at the theology department, this was. And the people who were involved in that said the experiences, the religious experiences they had during their services, they have never, ever experienced to the same extent since. They were just right. amazing and wonderful because they lifted them. I think they, they were early... Um, versions of um, um one of the many psychedelic drugs of the 60s <laughs> yeah. um so you know i think it's you know the it drugs give you a quick and dirty way of getting into as it were uh um trance states and therefore into what traditionally are then described as getting into the spirit world and having direct um mind to mind content contact with with the divine principle or god or whoever you want to uh yeah label it as getting into the last
0: couple of questions now um say i wanted to set up my own charismatic cult uh what is the psychology that makes uh, a cult leader and then i suppose this, the second question is that uh, what's the psychology that makes one more susceptible to being a cult member
3: hey uh, yes i i i I think both of those are quite difficult questions to ask. People have asked them extensively previously, and there've been quite a large number of attempts to try and study um, the the leadership side of it. Although, as you might expect, on the whole cult leaders are rather reluctant to expose themselves to uh, um, uh, close analysis. In partly because I suspect very often they intuitively know that things aren't hundred percent as they want to describe them, and they don't want to be kind of uh, found out, or they don't want to be found out to themselves. You know, it's it's you know, if it's if you're told suddenly that your world doesn't work the way it is, it's a major psychological trauma for you. So you know, naturally, nobody wants to give up their beliefs that easily. Um, but I, I, there is a sense in which. Or let's say it's quite interesting that a lot of the people who create bolts, the charismatic leaders, are loners, um, slightly kind of um, off center on on a lot of psychiatric dimensions, as it were. They're not necessarily clinically um, uh, 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 troubled, but you know they they're they they're not they they're a bit more kind of. Um, uh, psychotic than, than the average for the population um, that they spend a lot of time wrapped up in themselves. This is very, very common. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll have some major trauma uh, in life and they'll retreat into, you know, won't leave their house or they'll go and uh, hide in a, a cave or something and then emerge literally years later very often having become enlightened. And I think that's again consequence of, you know, being thrown into trance by the things they're doing and by the, tra- the traumatic experiences at a psychological level why people follow i don't know i mean it, it, we just do that we seem to do that all the time um you know we do it in in the context of business you know the person who sets up uh, we won't mention any names but sets up you know some very successful business be- be- becomes a charismatic leader if we like it or not and yeah. probably things work better if there is a sense of that because then everybody who works for them has a commitment to them uh to 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 and the things work better um but, but like all these things a little bit of charisma charisma is good for you too much charisma um probably you know is a disaster well that's a good uh, point i think to end so uh thank you so much uh
0: robin for uh for the conversation the book is how religion evolved and why it endures it's well worth a read if anyone's interested in these topics uh, even in the slightest it's, it's full of ideas uh, thank you so much t- uh, to intelligence squared for hosting our conversation and uh, thank you so much uh, for everyone uh, to everyone in the audience for joining us tonight
2: If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion, and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access too, currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world,